Welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I'm one of your hosts. Joining us today is the other host, Kovac Goblu. How are you doing today, my friend CGB? What up? It's me. It's CGB. Excited for today's show. Absolutely. We did our homework, my friend. We, we ate our mom's spaghetti. We did some testing. And we came prepared and fully loaded to talk to you about Historic Today. So briefly, what we're going to be touching on today is we're going to talk about some of the decks that we played against each other in our fun and entertaining streamer event earlier this week. Uh, Last week, I guess, for you listening to this. And then we're going to go into just some of the existing archetypes in Historic that you should be looking out for when the Ranked queue goes live on May 21st. And finally, we're going to be just speculating on how the Historic Anthology 3 and also maybe some new Ikoria cards might shape the format that we can expect to see because Historic's probably going to get shaken up pretty substantially in the next month or two. So basically now is an exciting time to be playing the format. So that's the overview of what we're talking about today. First, I just wanted to make a quick announcement, which is that this past week... Thanks to all of your help, including you, CGB, I reached the milestone of Twitch affiliate. And that was... Yay! Woo! Yay! Applause insert. Yeah, that, that was a cool thing for me. I've been at this podcasting thing for a while, and I feel pretty confident about it. But as a Twitch streamer, I am like new, new baby steps. You know what I mean? Like every time I fire it up, I'm like, is something going to go wrong? How does my street? Like, I just I really don't know what I'm doing. And so having the support from the community and having all of the fine, wonderful people who show up to say hi and hang out, even if it's briefly makes such a big difference and i'm sure some of you i know also stream and you can probably relate to this feeling of like especially before you're an established streamer and an established personality the difference between having zero people in your chat and having one person in your chat is huge and just and the difference between having no chatters and having any chatters is huge so for everyone who just shows up chats Maybe if you're just hanging out while you're doing something else or playing games, whatever, it makes a big difference. And I'm I'm just super appreciative to everyone who's been supportive so far. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Twitch.tv forward slash ArenaCraft podcast is where you can find the stream. And I would like to get a more regular stream schedule going here. It's a little tough because I work full time and making this podcast and doing all of those various things take up a good amount of my content creation time. But I do try to stream, you know, here and there, sometimes in the afternoons during the week, if I find the time or definitely on the weekends, I try to do some streams. And if I look at my schedule and I'm feeling like I can commit to a certain time, then I'll definitely let everybody know so that you can actually have something to, you know, look forward to. So thank you so much for that. Love you all. You're amazing. Another quick announcement I wanted to make is just that we are continuing our $20 gift prize per month contest so lest you should forget you can earn a $20 prize in a platform of your choice 
for the simple action of following on Twitch, following on Twitter, YouTube, joining the Discord, leaving a review on iTunes. We love those iTunes reviews and we weight them heavily in the contest. You can even like on Facebook. Just any kind of engagement slash follow will get counted. We really, really appreciate that. And I just gave out the second prize this month to last month's winner. So, yeah. Okay, that's enough I've said about that. CGB, is there anything you would like to announce before we move along? I want $20. You got all these $20 you're giving out. <laughs> you know what's funny, CGB? You almost won last week, last month's prize. <laughs> no! That's impossible. <laughs> you, were, you were literally one away from winning it, which is hilarious. That would be pretty funny. So um, next week, can we have a segment where you give me a prize? I, I feel like I'm I'm putting in good work over here. I'm, uh, you are I'm... putting in good work, my friend. <laughs> I'll, I'll come up with something. I I, I think it's going to be a title. I'm going to come up with a title for you. That'll be your prize. Honestly, that intro is always the prize. Like for me, I don't know that the intros always make my uh, make my week. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> keep it in mind. So what's coming down the pike for you, my friend? The thing that I'm most preparing for right now is Jank Week, the oh, return great. of Jank Week to my YouTube channel and my Twitch stream. And there are actually two looming Jank Week possibility triggers, thresholds, you might say, um, that make this happen, which is if I get to 200 patrons, and right now I'm at 190, so only 10 patrons away, the lowest tier is only $2, so that's really close. The other one is for reasons we don't have to go into, um, 69,000 YouTube subscribers is also a jank week, so there's actually a potential perfect storm of a double jank week because wow. we're at 62,000 YouTube subscribers right now. So would that mean two jank weeks in a row? Yes. Oh, baby. And I don't... Oh, my gosh. What, <laughs> what would I do? What would I do? I've, I, I've started brewing ducks in advance because I know my viewers. They are trolls. They are evil. They just want to see me squirm. They're going to find a way to make this happen at the exact same time. It's going to be the perfect jank storm. So, ArenaCraft fam, you know what to do. Covert Go Blue on all the platforms. Patron, YouTube, let's go and make this dream a reality because I want to see CGB squirm for two weeks You mean weeks this straight. nightmare. This nightmare. <laughs> Can I submit my 56 forests for Nissa deck for your dank week? It wouldn't be the first time I've received such builds. Okay. You might think <laughs> okay. that was an original, but that is that has happened already. That one has happened. Wow, okay. So I, I got to get brewing. Uh, okay, well, that's really exciting. So yeah, let's all go and, and support the CGB. The 69 one is the one I'm really interested in. So let's make that happen. Nice. All right. Well, to make you squirm a little more, CGB, before we get into the main thrust of our show, I have come up with da -da 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 -da, another gas or ass segment. For you this time. For me. So here's what's going to happen, is I have lined up 10 historic cards, and I'm just going to read them off to you with no context, no deck, no anything, just the cards, and you are going to tell me and the listeners whether they are gas or ass. Are you ready? Oh boy. 
<laughs> you know, this is very against my programming. I'm I'm the person who tries to make the video at least 10 minutes long, if not an hour on YouTube by filling things in. And you're trying to boil my card assessment skills down to one term or the other. And this is going to be a challenge. But I, as always, with a little stretching and some gumption, I am ready. Excellent. You know, CGB, chocolate or vanilla... One of those has to be your favorite, okay? So as we go down this list, you just chocolate or vanilla, all right? You ready? Here okay. we go. Gas or ass? Ornithopter. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, oh, oh, man, ornithopter. Ornithopter is gas. Okay, ornithopter is gas. Ornithopter is gas. Yeah. 100%. Am I supposed to elaborate or do I just... Maybe, like, you know, a sentence or two if you feel like it. Dude... Ornithopter is free. It is a zero-two artifact. And I had a friend, my best friend playing Magic growing up, who I eventually fell out of touch with. He had one of those things where as soon as he turned 18, he jumped in his car and went away to play chess for a living and just never looked back. Never really got to hear from him much after that, almost ever. But he left me one thing when he left, and it was 72 ornithopters whoa <laughs> he would he would shuffle them up he would just sit down to play a, a game of magic like like nothing was wrong he would just shuffle up his 72 ornithopters he would just throw his hand on the table and say go <laughs> and people would look at him like what the hell are you doing and they would always think it was lame he thought it was the best thing in the world so that what is why troll. ornithopter ornithopter is it. permanent gas <laughs> every every turn thereafter ornithopter go the white weenie deck struggles to win against such circumstances. Mm -hmm. All right, next question. Luminous Broodmoth, gas or ass? Oh, man. The card is gas. It really is. It's a sweet card, but it's got no home. Its standard application and probably historic application is complete ass. Complete but ass. the card is gas. The card is gas. I, I, can't, I can't give up on Mothra. Mothra, we hope that you find a home someday in the sky beyond. Next card, uh, you will be amused to hear this one coming off the list. Fanatical Firebrand. You know what I'm going to rate this. <laughs> how's, how's Fanatical Firebrand doing this week? Fanatical Firebrand is complete, total, absolute gas. As I learned the hard way on our head-to-head -head this week, we will get into the details coming up. But yes, Fanatical Firebrand brought a surprising amount of gas to the table this week and is also just a, a deep player in the mono-red aggro list anyway. So I'm I, I, the, the mandate is not for me to give the gas or ass, but I'm going to do an honorary one here and say gas for Fanatical Firebrand. Next up, the, the follow-up CGB, Thalia... Guardian of Thraben. Oh, I respect the card. Man, it's going to be tricky in Historic because it's so hard to balance the creature with the spells that you need and the amount of combo you're playing against. I think that Thalia, though, is still very much gas in Historic. Very much. Yeah, I think just simple things like slamming Thalia on turn two or three when your opponent was holding up a wrath is pretty nasty you know just other things like making your opponent's counter spells more awkward making their planeswalkers hard to cast on curve making their removal spells hard to cast on curve i think thalia can do just enough 
in these humans decks and maybe even some of these other white creature decks to earn her place. All right, next up, Khan, Scion of Urza. That's a good one. That's a good one. Card was sort of a role player in standard. Always seemed like it could do very well in older formats where you have cheap artifacts to make the token stronger. But it's one of those cards that feels like it's from a different era of magic before turn four was ramped to a million mana, gain some kind of spiraling whirlwind of advantage and win the game. So I I, I feel like anytime you're plussing Karn, you have a bad Jamde Tome. Is that the old card? Four yep. mana draw card. <laughs> yep. So Karn gets, you know, Karn gets, Karn is ass. Yep. The, the good old stone robot ass for Karn. Next up, let's let's see, let's check in with our boy Teferi, hero of Dominaria, in historic gas or ass. It's a very good question. We long now, you know, we just we pine for the simpler times where all we had to be angry at was Teferi, hero of Dominaria. <laughs> oh, right. That's such a good point. There once was a time where the worst thing somebody could do to us is play a five mana planeswalker that drew a card and untapped two land. That was that was the big mana advantage. They untapped two land so they could hold up veto or whatever. But yeah. Teferi is not ass, therefore by the very black or white chocolate or vanilla structure of this conversation, it is gas, but it's not the gas it used to be. And yeah. I oh man, did I love plussing Teferi. Oh my goodness. So maybe it's not gas, it's lighter fluid. I mean I suppose it's it's gas. It's just it's the engine is different. You know, we used to we used to be the hottest new model car on the block. And now we've been rusting in the garage for a while and everybody's got something a little shinier. So we don't pull we don't pull that engine out as often as we used to. Poor Teferi. You know, Teferi still sleeps at night, though. You know what I'm saying? Let's move on to our next GRA root snare. Root snare is ass and always will be. <laughs> Stupid fog effects. They're so they're just so dumb. Um, but I mean, to get real about it, like the card got a lot worse when they made Questing Beast and Bone Crusher Giant. And oddly, it was a set too late that they introduced both of these cards for to stop Nexus and Root Snare in standard. But it was like they also put a fork in it in Historic and for some reason still keep Nexus banned in best of one. Um, but yeah, especially with Red Green being one of the best decks in Historic right now, Root Snare, it might be a necessity. I'm not sure. Haven't played Nexus in a while, but it certainly feels like ass. Oh, Teferi. I didn't even mention Teferi Time Raveler. And root snare, that's a that's a horrible feeling. What happens with the two of those? They can't cast spells on your turn. Oh, I, I so yeah, so so if your opponent slams a Teferi, then your root snare does nothing. Oh yeah, unless you want to fog yourself at, at sorcery speed. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, just for the rubbins, right? Just for the rubbins. Yeah, yeah. Which is you know, so if you're getting beaten down by the Esper Humans deck, watch out for the Teferi. Next card. Uh, now I picked three for the end of our list. Actually, I have a bonus as well, but I picked three for the end of our list from the new anthology. So these will be interesting to think about. The first one I have for you is Swan Song. Mm, very good one. A um, lot of mixed feelings on this one. 
because it's man i don't think you can main deck this card i think the meta would have to be really specific and even then it's like a specific kind of deck you don't want to play this against a deck where the 2-2 matters where you're both attacking you only want it in a place where they have literally no use for a 2-2 something along the lines of underworld breach combo right but but it's terrible against Kethis combo and uh, ass ass yeah i give it ass that sounds terrible i should not i should not present this that way <laughs> not line your word up words up so indeed all right so how about the next one enchantress's presence this is another one i've thought about a lot i've loved enchantress decks always have the put a bunch of enchantments on the battlefield draw a bunch of cards make a giant creature the whole playstyle I I adored. Just the just any kind of like combo deck that can go off and draw a ton of cards was always fun for me. So so we're giving this one a gas. I can't. Magic has changed. <laughs> Magic, Magic is changed. different now. I have to give Enchantress's presence ass, and I hate it because I think it's a really cool card. But this is another nostalgia play. It's another trap. Yeah, it really is. You know that like. It's not just about drawing a bunch of cards anymore. It's about mana. And this is a three-mana do-nothing on its own. Yep. Unfortunate ass for Enchantress's presence. We will look out for potentials in the future, but not feeling super confident about that. Yep. Joining the sad, unfortunate ass club. <laughs> the unfortunate ass club. It's a fairly large club. It's, it's gaining members by the day. So uh, finally on the card, uh, on the list, Mazes End. To be clear, gates are ass, but Mazes End is actually gas. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the, now, now we don't have to, you know, we don't have to think about our Colossus and our Gatebreaker Ram, these stupid clunky creatures that don't give you any value when they enter the battlefield. Now, now we can win the game the way that, Richard Garfield intended by just playing more gates. Just slamming those gates, baby. Just slamming those gates, baby. No, that it, it's actually a win con that would make me think about playing gates. I always pick on gates. I think gates are stupid. And then there's something like this where it's like, wait a minute. Now I have a win con. And I don't have to interact with my opponent at all. I don't have to ever attack or block. I can literally just sit over here getting more gates and win the game. That's gas. It's gas. I'm, I'm a sick person. And I have to say, friends, just just line yourself up and get ready for the inevitable gate shift decks, which are going to be popping up on Arena, because it's probably going to be like every fifth match you play is going to be some random gate shift deck. So just, you know, just get ready for that. It's going to be fun. All right. Finishing off the list, I have a bonus question for you. Ready for this one? Treasure Hunt. Are you a troll? <laughs> I thought you. I thought you'd like this one. There is nothing I hate more than stupid <laughs> decks. Stupid decks that do the same stupid play pattern every game. And the reason for that is not that I think they shouldn't exist. It you, you Arjuna, you're a new Twitch affiliate. You're you're young. You have your whole content creation <laughs> life on Twitch ahead of you. Someday you'll understand. And all of you. Twitch affiliates out there who are new with stars in your eyes and you're not jaded and beaten down, you will find out the viewers 
will just come back and want you to do the same monotonous crap over and over <laughs> and over. They will ask for it again and again and again. They are never satisfied. So there is always somebody, and it seems like every single week this happens when I play my subscriber-submitted decks and my viewer-submitted decks, somebody sends me Treasure Hunt every time. Every time. And I, mm, I hate it. <laughs> So I just, it's so stupid and boring. It's like persistent petitioners in Brawl. This happens every week. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you unaware with the card, the, the plan with this card is basically to play like, it's like six non-land cards in your deck or something. And you play this card Treasure Hunt, which makes you draw cards until you hit another non-land card. And the idea is that you just deck yourself and then win with something like Thassa's Oracle. So that that's... That's the concept. The deck's super linear. It's super like, you know, mall to three, just trying to find a treasure hunt kind of a thing. Dude, dude, it's it's more than that. It's 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 the most linear deck of all time. It's fifty-six lands, three treasure hunts, and one Thassa's Oracle. Right. That is the deck. <laughs> right. You, you joked about like four Nissa and fifty-six lands. I mean that's that's nothing. This is the and, and this deck actually wins sometimes. That, oh man, I hate it. I hate this. I hate that deck so much. Yeah, I have. I have had a good time coming up with weird ways to beat it. I'm not kidding. One of my favorite videos against the treasure hunt deck was when they went for their combo, and I had a Teferi on the board that I had plused a time raveler so I could play sorceries at instant speed. So in response to their decking themselves and playing Thassa's Oracle, I cast Command the Dreadhorde, reanimating my Platinum Angel. Oh, baby. <laughs> and they could not win the game. And they had no deck. So that was worth all of the pain, wasn't it? Just to, just no, to execute it's still, that. No, no, it's still ass. No, it's still ass. <laughs> it's all right, permanent right. ass stamp. Not even Platinum <laughs> Angel could save us from the ass territory. All right, well, that, that concludes this week's Gas or Ass. Thank you for joining us on the game show, CGB. And we will look forward to the next time we bring that in. So now... Yeah, I win a boat. Do I do I have a boat? I'm supposed to win a boat or a vacation. Uh, I think you'll just have to settle for a new car. Are you all right with that? Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Very Moving good. On. Very good. Uh, which I'm paying for with all of our Patreon money. Okay. So um, next, next, let's talk briefly about this little event that we ran earlier this week. Again, CGB and I brought a combination of some homebrews and also just some net decking, bringing some classic examples of historic decks to the table. We went head to head. We had some fun. Some trash was talked. I mostly got dumpstered, which didn't surprise anybody. But anyway, what were you most impressed by this last week from our head to head? To start that off, like the most impressive thing in historic to me is the mana. Mm, okay. You can cast pretty much all your spells, even in like three and four color decks on time. Two color aggro isn't terrible, and it's probably getting better with ancient ziggurat. And there's unclaimed territory. Like the the mana is the best thing about historic. It really feels like you can curve out with almost any curve that your brain can put together. Whereas even in standard, like two color decks like red green feel handicapped. Like, you have to play monocolor to curve out, it feels like. Oh my gosh. I mean, those check lands, like, mm -hmm. just throwing a check land untapped on the table on turn two was like... Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember this. I remember what this felt like to be able to do this in standard. So, yeah, totally agree. The mana is amazing. 
I mean, definitely the best mana you're going to find in any arena format. So that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So what deck did you enjoy the most? What deck did I enjoy the most? Well, so on the playing end, I definitely had the most fun with Esper Humans, which I knew coming in. I just have a soft spot for humans decks. I have a soft spot for hate bears strategies. One of the things I like about the Esper Humans deck is just that regardless of whether you win or lose, you're going to have an interactive game of magic playing a humans deck. And I really like that. I really love things. I love games where you get to have to make a decision about casting your... um, why am I blanking on the name of it now? The uh, the pirate that steals your opponent's stuff. Hostage Taker. Hostage Taker. Yeah, exactly. So I love casting Hostage Taker. I love casting Hostage Taker on turn four and worrying that my opponent has an answer for it and they get their creature back. I just love stuff like that. Oh, we had a game, for example, where I stole your Croxa, but I couldn't cast it. I couldn't cast it against you because it would go back to your graveyard. And so I actually had to wait until I got another graveyard hate card in play before I could cast your Croxa. And the whole time I was worrying that you were going to kill my hostage taker and then you were going to get another hit off Croxa. So stuff like that, I just love. I also love casting Meddling Mage, one of my favorite cards. So on my end, that was the deck I had the most fun playing with. I, I did briefly take the mono blue tempo deck for a ride, got utterly and completely annihilated by your white life gain deck now admittedly a bad matchup but i will say that in two games i found my first curious obsession on turn 12 of game two or something like that so the deck didn't exactly perform for me however that mono blue tempo deck has won stuff recently it's still you know it can still definitely turn out the goods it can still on a good day have a pretty good matchup against anyone so that was that was fun in air quotes to revive that deck i'll say and i'm hoping you're going to talk more about this but the deck of yours i was by far the most impressed with was that loris self mill deck that you brought to the table let's hear you talk about that one a bit sure that deck is freaking sweet let me say where it came from really quick if i can find it easily somebody posted in my discord this tournament it was i think organized on reddit or somewhere a historic tournament that happened and the top four decks from that tournament and three of them looked very red-ish aggressive like gruel and gruel and is it aggro and then there was this one deck that i looked at and i was like i don't know what the heck this thing is even doing and it's a grixis graveyard shell built around stitcher's supplier of course Fiend Artisan, which is the two mana with power and toughness plus one plus one for each creature in your graveyard. Tomagoy. Yeah, yeah. It can sacrifice a creature and go fetch another creature, which turned out to be super relevant. It had four Fanatical Firebrand, which at first I looked at and was very confused by. This would come up, this would become relevant later. It had cards like Croxa and Mire Triton to get more self-mill and graveyard value. It had... What else did it have? Did it have Lazav? Oh my goodness. No, I don't think you were running no, Lazav. That's the standard version. Never yeah. mind. It, uh, but it did have uh, Narcomoeba and Creeping Chill, the graveyard. Oh my if, gosh. Uh, if you mill this, this happens cards that have just been lurking around standard and doing nothing for a very <laughs> long having, time. I'm having PTSD. 
Yeah, yeah. It had Merfolk Secret Keeper as another way to self-mill for one mana, also a creature. And it had it was the Luris deck. So all the permanents were two mana or less, and it had Luris as companion. And it had Call of the Death Dweller, which another card that I looked at, like, what is going on here? And I believe also Dreadhorde Butcher. So it's a pile of a ton of creatures. Call the Death Dweller, and it it had one maximized velocity, which would come come in very handy as well. And this deck is just all about Stitcher Supplier, Secret Keeper, Self Mill, Build a Big Graveyard. If you have a Fiend Artisan, you sack your Stitcher Supplier to go get more Stitcher Suppliers, or at least that's the way that I always did it. And then it had with Call the Death Dweller, when you have this graveyard, you're often getting back a Fanatical Firebrand and a Dreadhorde Butcher and you or a Fiend Artisan, and you give the Fiend Artisan or the Butcher Menace, so they're hard to block, and you give the Fanatical Firebrand Death Touch. A one-mana, one-one haste with Death Touch that can sacrifice to ping a creature. It's just a one-mana removal spell all of a sudden on a stick. It's it's almost beautiful in its simplicity because for some reason it never even occurred to me to use the card in that way. I've done Mayhem Devil with Call the Death Dweller, but Call the Death Dweller with Fanatical Firebrand, you still have the other creature to reanimate because you get two creatures back so it's three mana kill something and get an awesome creature enhanced with menace it's kind of insane it's so beautiful so there's just a number of things about this deck which became apparent to me watching you play it that are just so slick the first thing is and and after i watched you play this deck i developed an appreciation for the fact that when you play a loris deck it's very important to have high-quality one-drop cards to play. Two-drop cards with Luris are substantially worse, and it's just and and with Call of the Death Dweller, it's the same thing. It's like being able to get back two cards consistently is so important, and having those two cards be good and good for your game plan is so important. And which is why building a deck like this in standard didn't work because I was looking down the list of cards in standard and there were just no good ones. And so it was just a deck full of a bunch of twos. And I eventually decided that you couldn't really play a shell like this in standard. But in historic, we have access to these beautiful one drops that have rotated, namely the two that you mentioned, the stitches supplier and the fanatical firebrand, both of which do so much work in this deck. It's kind of hard to convey how much work those two cards do until you actually see the deck in action. And a kind of a junky card like fanatical firebrand, when you're able to play it again with Luris, and when you're able to play it again with Call of the Death Dweller, means that you are just literally never running out of gas in this deck. I just like this, you, you cannot stop the train in this deck basically ever. And the amazing thing about it is that, again, cards like Narc Amoeba, for example, cards like Creeping Chill get pretty bad when you start running out of gas and you just don't have additional ways to keep churning through your library. And re- things like being able to recur Stitch's Supplier with your Lyris, being able to recur it with Call of the Death Dweller, it just means that you have this constant churn of things going into your graveyard constant ability to get them back it's just a deck that feeds itself so well and is just continuing to output basically shocking amounts of damage every turn just due to being able to make massive fiend artisans being able to flip a surprising number of creeping chills into the graveyard so yeah i was super impressed by this deck the 
best thing about this deck for me was something I got to learn about you, which is that you have a trigger. You do not like it when your opponent gets a free 1-1 with flying at all. Oh my gosh. I was so... I have never been so tilted by Nark Amoeba. (laughs) (laughs) That card is so bad, and it looked so good against me in that match. (laughs) Yeah, especially when I hit it off Mire Triton, which is the smallest mill that my deck has available to it. It's just like the top two. Oh, Nark Amoeba. Another (laughs) Nark Amoeba. And another one. It... It's just, it seems so innocuous, but that deck is surprisingly good at getting Nark Amoebas onto the field from the graveyard. So, yep, definite, def- we, we all learned something about Arjuna on that day. I was like, you know what? Death-touching fanatical firebrand, that's sweet. You know, uh, Stitcher's Supplier, always a card looking for a home. I'm a big fan of that card. But dying to knock me, but that was, that was a new low for me, for sure. <laughs> I would also add that the um, maximized velocity on the Fiend Artisan, mm. which is then like super thick Fiend Artisan because of your graveyard, like all the self-mill that you do, uh, you can end up maximized velocity on a like 13-13 Fiend Artisan, just kill people out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's just like you have so many options in this deck. Like like you said, Fiend Artisan being able to fetch stuff up keeps the gas train going. It keeps your Stitcher Suppliers dying to get more cards in the graveyard. It's also a great way to leverage your useless Nark Amoeba that's not killing your opponent because they never do that. So it's just a lot of different cool loops that you can create with this deck, and I was very, very impressed. So this is definitely going into the historic meta game this is definitely kind of deck zero that I would be bringing to the table to just have fun with the format and see what else is going on. For sure. It has fantastic, like anyone who's trying to play a creature matchup against you, this deck has a lot of gas against. So very cool. Was there anything else from that event that stood out before we move on to just doing a kind of a breakdown of the meta game? You played most of the control decks and I'm typically the person who likes to play control And I just, like, whenever I sat down with my chat last week to build decks for the event on Twitch, I would just look at this control list that a year ago, I was like, oh, it's beautiful. It has Thought (laughs) Erasure. It has Eight Teferis. It has Narset. It has Wraths. It's beautiful, man. It's the most beautiful control thing you've ever seen. And I'm looking at it in this new modern context after the release of pretty much everything since Throne of Eldraine. And I'm looking at it like, this is this is garbage. <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. And it's because, like, you just can't answer what's going on anymore. Counterspells, sweepers, like, these things don't... They don't stop that train. I look at this deck and I think about that Grixis deck. You pointed out the matchup with other aggro decks, which I agree. It's really hard to beat a bunch of free creatures, crippling chill, life gain, and just this endless train running. But a control deck can't really do it either. Um, like There's just too much to answer. And until you can specifically hate the graveyard, like there's not much you can do. And... Every time I've sat down to make a control deck for this format, I've looked at it and said, I'm not going to control anything. You know, it's, it's, it's a Bane meme, right? Do you feel in charge? You know, <laughs> I, I, no, no, I don't feel in control when I play these control decks. But I'm curious, since you played them in this event and I did not, did, did you feel in charge? 
You know, so here's the thing about control decks, and it's I, I think the the older the format is and the broader the card pool is, the more you have to answer this question of can my control deck really control the game, right? Because we run into this in modern, we run into this in, in formats older than modern, where it's like, yeah, cool, you have great counter spells, you have cool planeswalkers, you have these powerful cards and whatever, but is it really better than just having a proactive game plan? And I think that you're totally right. The answer in most cases is no. I think if there's anything that's propping up control at the moment in Historic, it's probably the fact that there are a couple of decks that are tier one or even tier zero decks, which these which are kind of playing an old school game plan, which control can be good against, right? So I think if you're doing the red deck wins, the mono red aggro thing, or if you're doing the uh, gruel aggro thing, then I think that the control deck has that 50-50 chance. You know, you, you hit your wraths, you cast your absorbs in the mid to late game, and you can just get there against decks like that with control without too much hassle. But I agree, as soon as an opponent is is leveraging some more kind of powerful, cyclical, self-feeding decks, I think as soon as companions start showing up more in Historic, as soon as all of that kind of stuff starts to happen and we're playing a bit more of a modern style of magic... Then yeah, these Azorius control decks are just they're just a bit too slow, they're a bit too clunky. I ended up feeling, you know, like for example, I had a, a pretty quick and easy game against your Gruel deck with the control deck, and that felt great because that's exactly the kind of deck that a, a control deck like that is built to beat. But um as soon as I started playing against your Laris deck with it, I it, it it was funny. It's like I looked at my hand and every card that I played felt like it just cost one mana too much. I was mm-hmm. like, man, yeah. I really wish that this three mana planeswalker was a two mana planeswalker. I really wish that this wrath cost me only three mana so I could do this other thing. I was just like, I felt like I couldn't keep up. I felt like none of my spells were doing enough for the amount of mana that I was spending on them. And especially looking across the table and having your opponent be like, you know, Stitcher's Supplier, into this, into that, you discard a card, my creature gets haste, you go. And I was like, Cool. I guess I'll hold up absorb then. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think I don't know. That I think the answer is we're going to need more efficient threats. I mean more efficient answers and control just doesn't have them in historic. So I mostly agree with you. Okay. Yeah, that was the main thing that stuck out to me, but yeah, we uh totally agree with that. We can hit the decks of the historic meta if you wish now. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about this. So uh, we mentioned a couple of them so far. The premier aggro lists in Historic are Gruul and Mono Red. And unless you've been living under a rock, you're probably familiar with the play patterns of both of these decks. Uh, The card that I want to specifically highlight for the Gruul deck, if you're not used to Historic, is Burning Tree Emissary. This is the sole reason... I believe that Gruul is at all competitive in Historic. I guess it's not the sole reason. Uh, the mana being good is also another thing that makes just like any two-color aggro deck pretty playable. And so Gruul does have a lot of strong options. Like, for example, if Gruul had a Historic mana base in Standard, I think it would probably have always been a competitive deck. 
but the mana has really held it back in standard. So having the good mana in historic is a shot in the arm for this deck, but I think the Burning Tree Emissary is really the main reason that this deck puts up such good numbers. And so this card is basically, it's a two drop, which gives you a red and a green when you drop it. And for anyone who stops to think about that, it's just a free two drop. And so if you have yet to witness your opponent vomit out three or four two drops on turn two against you, I don't know, CGB, is it strong? It's pretty good. Uh, and and so that anybody who missed the boat on Historic in the past who might be listening to this show knows, the Burning Tree Emissary was part of Historic Anthology 1, I believe. I, I'm pretty sure it yeah. was in the first one. And I believe it's an uncommon. You don't have to buy the anthology to get these cards from the past anthologies, you can search for them in Not Collected and craft them. So this is only an uncommon, and it is one of the best cards in Historic. If it's in your opening hand with another two drop in your aggressive deck, and you get to play two two drops, it's basically like you got double mana on turn two, double the threats, double the damage, double the tempo. Why the hell did they put this in in Arena? (laughs) Why did they do this? You know, uh, on the one hand, I don't like it, but on the other hand, I think it's such a, it's, it plays the role in Historic that Teferi plays in Standard, right? It's just, it's the, it's the police officer of the format. And no, so, no, that's not, it's not close to the same. Teferi, you always have to pay three mana for, and if it's in your <laughs> opening hand, it may or may not be effective based on what the opponent does. This is a free card. If you draw it or multiples of it, the game is so dramatically different. On turn two, two. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that they just wanted. They wanted to have a surefire aggro deck be reasonable in Historic, and I think that that's why they allowed us to have Burning Tree Emissary. Well, checkmark. Good job. Give somebody a raise. They did it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it's why I think Gruul is so much better, because Gruul has Zerta Goblin um, to be a 3-3 for two mana. It can also play the Centaur... Galia of the Endless Dance and mm, get in yeah. there with haste, but also has that trigger that you use later to find your Ember Cleave. And I think that's why Gruul is significantly better than Mono Red. I honestly think people still play Mono Red in Historic because they don't realize they're playing Historic because it's just that play cue, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just hit play and you queue up last year's Mono Red by accident, and here we go. <laughs> Ooh, burn, burn. <laughs> I agree. If I was playing aggro in Historic, I would not be reaching for Mono Red. I just think that there are better and more interesting options. But, you know, I mean, if you're going to magic, people are going to be Mono Redding in whatever format we're playing. So we just have to accept that. So um, on the topic of these linear mono-colored decks... Let's just hit on the mono blue tempo a little bit because this is another, basically an old deck. Like, this deck is largely unmodified from its run in Standard. And it's another one of these decks where I feel like it felt a lot better before Loris. It felt a lot better before New Magic, basically. It felt a lot better before Throne of Eldraine came out. And I think that a deck like this will struggle to keep up on the value train. It can still, if you hit all of the right notes... You know, it's like if if you get your turn one flyer down, if you have your 
curious obsession with the dive down back up on turn two, then you can certainly get there. And it's a deck that has pretty explosive play patterns and can just kind of maintain control of the game for long enough to get you dead. But I wasn't particularly impressed playing it against you, even though I had bad draws, but it just didn't feel, I didn't have that feeling of like, ooh, yeah, this deck has, this deck is really contending. What, do you think that this deck still is going to have a place in the meta moving forward, or is it just kind of too small ball now? The deck has, it only has runaway games where it feels powerful when it does have the right draw, which is two islands, a 1-1 one, one, that flies or has evasion, a curious obsession, and a one-mana way to protect it so it doesn't die immediately. So like a dive down or a spell pierce. It really relies on that plan being good. That plan isn't even good if the opponent is putting if if the opponent is a burning tree emissary opponent who gets like two or three creatures into play while you had one mana open to protect your curious obsessed Thing. And it was also always a deck that won by inches, not miles, unless, of course, it had like double Curious Obsession or something like that. And because there is no companion that works for this deck right now, those inches are harder to come by. Everybody is starting with an extra card. I also feel like Luris has done this weird thing. It's made so many decks more efficient. Were, were, were we always supposed to play one and two mana permanents? Because it seems like a lot of decks that are became Luris decks suddenly became better, um, just so much more efficient. Like I remember when Luris was spoiled, people were like, "Well, Rakdos sacrifice. We we wouldn't want to give up Mayhem Devil." And the very first week, the number one mythic deck is Luris without Mayhem Devil. You know, it, it's like if you were lower to the ground, just killing people, you would have been better off. Well. If that is the direction of magic, lower to the ground, killing people, that is not good for the mono blue deck. The mono blue deck really needs those control decks that prey on the aggro decks so that it can prey on the control decks. And spell-based combo, to an extent. Like, spell-based combo is in trouble trying to get through spell pierce and various other counter spells. So, mono blue has targets. I just don't know how popular they will be. Mono Blue might have a very important job to do to keep people from scape shifting out a million zombies, something like that. So, uh, but for the most part, it's a very serious meta call. It's probably better in best of three now than best of one. Whereas I would have said that was the that that wasn't the case in the past, where it was a very good best of one deck. But yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, I think you're right. Total meta deck. So. Just, you know, maybe ready to spike a tournament here or there, but probably not a main player on the ladder. So let's talk about these scapeshift decks and these Field of the Dead decks. Now, this was one of my unpleasant realizations coming back into Historic. I think I was like two or three games in when I had that sinking realization of, oh, Mm. right, Field of the Dead is illegal in this Mm. format. Here we go again. So I've got to admit, like, one of the things that has kept me out of Historic is a couple of these key cards, which I just got so tired of playing against in Standard, and I feel like Historic was basically an excuse for people who actually liked those strategies to just keep right along doing them. So not a huge fan of it just from the kind of play experience perspective, but, I mean, Field of the Dead is one of the stronger cards to be printed in recent sets. It's made a splash in many different formats. 
it's just whatever deck you can imagine it having a good home in, it's probably going to do some good work in. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, is here's my question. So, Scapeshift rotated out of standard, and then we had a bunch of of post-Scapeshift Field of the Dead decks that actually did very well in standard. And one of the things that was on my mind by the end of that standard was, did we really need Scapeshift, and was it really that good? Uh, now, clearly, these Field of the Dead decks seem to still be relying on Scapeshift in Historic, so is it still just good enough, explosive enough, fast enough, whatever enough, that Scapeshift is the best Field of the Dead build in, in Historic? So I have a... I have a pretty strong opinion on this one, so I'll tear into it. First of all, to clarify for anybody else at home, they did ban Field of the Dead in Historic, and then when they released Historic Anthology 2, they actually put a lot of cards in it that picked on Field of the Dead, like Ghost Quarter, and um, Ghost Quarter is in Historic now, so is, I believe it's Virulent Plague? Yes. One black two, all tokens get minus two, minus two. Yeah enchantment so they printed a number of cards there were some other ones too that i can't remember off the top of my head that were efficient against hordes of zombies oh maelstrom pulse that's another one Mm, right so they printed all these and then they un to be technically correct they unsuspended field of the dead and brought it back so now this is kind of the proving ground as the ranked q comes back of like is Field of the Dead going to be a good deck with these cards that have been introduced. I Maybe it got messed with a little bit the last time we had the rank queue, but I don't think it was there very long. So this is another round of is Field of the Dead still broken despite the hate. And my take on this is that the Scapeshift Field of the Dead deck, a Bant version very similar to what Luis Scott Vargas won GP Denver with, was the big arrival of the scapeshift deck in standard. I think that is the best best of one deck because in best of one without sideboarding and without being able to shuffle in those answers, you just want to make a ton of zombies and win quickly. Most decks aren't adapted to the historic metagame in that way. They're not main decking deputy of detention, for example, because they're going to come up against the zombies. They it's not on everybody's radar. So I think that a Bant just ramp and play scape shift and make a pile of zombies and win the game in one swing, I think that that is the best version for best of one. But once you go into best of three and all those answers are available, and you gar- I guarantee with sideboards, people are going to use those answers. I guarantee with sideboards, they're not going to forget about your uh, field of, the presence of Field of the Dead in the format. So... In that case, I think there you don't want to be the scapeshift player because they're either going to answer the horde of zombies or they're going to keep your field of the deads from being particularly effective in some ways. The card is still incredibly powerful and difficult to interact with, but I think the best of three version is more of the Golos version, the versions we saw towards the end of standard, that it wasn't all about get 30 zombies on turn five. It was one field at a time, incremental advantage, and just kind of the endless rise of the walking dead and a much more careful game plan so for best of three you're looking for some kind of a golos maybe fires of invention even in the build and in best of one just scape shift to fairy end of turn make 30 zombies attack win yeah 
I, I think you're dead on there, right? Because if your opponent resolves their tokens get minus two, minus two enchantment, and you're looking down at scapeshift in your hand, you're feeling pretty bad about your life, right? So <laughs> you're definitely going to, you're going to want another way to get the job done in a situation like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Field of the Dead being unbanned in Historic. It's one of the things that makes me less excited to play. And I think it's simply because it, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the Luca matchup in Standard at the moment where you're like, oh, yup, they're, they're doing the thing again and I can't really do anything about it again. And, and you just, it's like there's this crushing feeling that you get when your opponent's doing it. There's this kind of inevitability that the deck has, which few other decks have. And I just think that it's a little too, it's a little too something to be fun to play against. I don't know quite what it is. It's like, I'll happily lose to other decks that are powerful. And I'm like, yeah, you Embercleaved, that's fine. I mean, I don't love it, right? I don't love losing to Embercleave on turn four or whatever. But there's just something particularly tilting about playing your hundredth, you know, Field of the Dead matchup and, and just having to deal with all that again. I've I, I've tried to define it as a hopelessness, the Hope- sinking hopelessness. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You look at your hand and you're like, I can't kill them in the next two turns, but they're going to have more zombies every single turn until I die starting now. And it might take 10 turns. It might take three, but it's over. Yeah. And it's just like top decking lands has never been so good. You know what I mean? It's like in most other decks, you top deck a land and that's losing you the game. And in this deck, you're like, you're like another creature. Great. That's going to get me another land. Another land. Great. That's going to get me three more zombies. It's just like whatever you draw off the top of your deck, you'll love to see it. Right. And your opponent hates to see it. And I think that that's one of the things that makes the deck such a bummer. We'll have to keep an eye on this and see if the answers really are good enough, but it does feel kind of bad. It, and I think this this reminds us of older formats, again, like modern, where you like you just need four rest in peace in your sideboard. And it's just like, if you're able to cast that, you need it in your sideboard. End of story, right? And I think that it's one of the things that makes a format a little less fun when you look at your sideboard and you're like, these six cards are for this matchup. These six cards are for this matchup. And that's it. You know what I mean? You're not like, oh, I bring this in against aggro. Oh, I bring this in against control. It's like, I bring this in against one card. There's one card that my deck needs to be able to answer in this format. And I've devoted an entire four, five, six slots in my sideboard just to winning that matchup. That feels pretty bad to me. But, you know, I mean, this is powerful magic. That's the state of things. Speaking of another powerful card, which a lot of people got tired of playing against, let's talk about everyone's <laughs> we, we make this sound so fun. <laughs> Grixis. There was a Grixis. There was a Grixis deck. It was really fun. What card do you think I'm going to mention here, CGB? What, what could I possibly... What could I be possibly moving us towards? <laughs> You're going to talk about Nexus of Fate. Indeed I am, sir. Indeed I am. <laughs> so uh, this is a... Nexus of Fate is another card I haven't played against in a while that I'm not super looking forward to playing against. This is basically another one of those fun Wilderness Reclamation decks. Everyone just loves that card as well. And basically this deck is designed to do two things. It's designed to prolong the game and it's designed to cast Nexus of Fate as much as it possibly can. And it does so by digging with search for Azcanta. It does so by just playing these cards 
which give you more looks, playing cards like Roots now, which keep you alive. This is a deck that I would think was really cool if it wasn't so good. I love for decks like this to exist as long as they're tier two or below. But the moment that a deck like this becomes tier one or even tier zero, it's just rather, rather miserable to have to play against. So I don't know. Do you think that we're going to have game against Bant Nexus moving forward? Like, do you think that Laris, do you think that some of these other cards, some of these newer magic archetypes are going to make Nexus a better matchup? That's a great question. And I think, yes, I think Nexus isn't going to be as good as it has been in the past. So I'll go into some detail. Uh, Nexus is still banned in best of one, even in historic. It's banned in every best of one format in arena. It's the only that I know of existing format ban where if it's a best of one format, it's banned. So if you want to avoid Nexus, the best of one will not have it, but the best of three still can. And there's some pretty good tools against Nexus. We talked about Root Snare earlier. Stomp and Questing Beast have been printed to invalidate that along with the Fairy Time Raveler. So if you are a beatdown deck, you have some pretty sweet tools. Did we mention that Burning Tree Emissary is a card? You can play this and then stomp with the Bone Crusher Giant for free. <laughs> so, so you can even progress your battlefield with a 2-2 and still shut off their fog for the turn and attack with your other guys. It's pretty nice. Um, and Questing Beast Wall of Text, of course. But another key printing against Nexus of Fate is Meddling Mage, which is, in my opinion, a key best of three card. If there is a blue-white control deck or an Esper control deck, if it's actually going to have game in a best of three environment, Meddling Mage is really important. It's, um, like, besides being good against companions, which it very much is, the, the fact that you can name it and shut down a key combo piece, I think is going to be one of the features of what makes this format good if it is in fact a good format that we can contain these combo decks that just there was no interaction for nexus like this in standard and then the other card with meddling mage is thalia just making what they do cost one more doesn't sound that big especially with wilderness reclamation but this is a deck that usually has to just get over the finish line they're willing to sacrifice all their life points and their entire deck is devoted to getting to a state where they cast nexus over and over and every mana counts. Often they're casting three or four spells a turn trying to get there. If you think about the Mythic Championship last year, that Nexus of Fate won, that last turn sequence where it was playing against Esper Hero, I believe we saw activate search for as activate as Kanta the Sunken Ruin, cast Growth Spiral, cast Opt, and it was like the last card of the last card where they found Nexus. If you add one mana to any of those spells, they don't win that game. So there's some tools. They might be in sideboard. They might be in main deck. But I think that there's better things now to fight Nexus than there was in standard. Mm. Hard agree that. Yeah, Meddling Mage, one of my all-time favorite cards. <laughs> that might have actually been the first spell I resolved against you in our head-to-head. Yeah, naming my companion. I was like, oh, this is how we're going to be today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Meddling Mage got boost from Companion as well. Um, so that is a card to watch. Yep, yep. I think Meddling Mage. So so for those of you in the back of the room, blue, white, human, 2-2. Two, two, and when you cast it, you name a card and your opponent can't cast uh, spells with that name. So 
Is that right? It's not a play, right? So you can't hate out uh, Field of the Dead with it. That is correct. Okay, so it's a cast thing. Your opponent can't cast. So any spell that they can cast, they cannot cast, which is nice. Um, and this is just a really good toolbox card against all kinds of annoying things in the meta. I also, one of the things I like about this specifically against Bant decks is that Bant decks don't really have spot removal and they don't really have efficient ways to deal with hate bears like this. So... Mm-hmm. You can resolve one of these and you can kind of put your opponent to task. Like, what can you do about this opponent? Do you have an answer for it? And of course, you're going to be running far of them, right? So even if your opponent does end up having to shatter the sky or, you know, cast some awkward removal spell to to deal with it, then you can just slam another one down. So yeah, I think that meddling mage is single-handedly going to make this format a lot more fun. Depending on which side of the table you're on, right? I mean, there's probably going to be... I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I love the philosophy that we're going to make this format more fun by telling our opponent what cards they can't play. Here's what I love about Meddling Mage, is that Meddling Mage makes your control matchups harder by being able to name the shatter of the sky, right? Or being able to even name a counter spell. Let's say that you have a, a game-winning thing that you want to do on this turn or a game-winning thing you want to do next turn. You can just name the counter spell that you think your opponent has and lock them out that way. You can slam it down on turn two and name to fairy if you don't want for them to get their time raveler down the next turn. So it just, it gives the format a lot of play. I always think cards like these are fun because you have to be thinking about how the game's going to play out. And especially when you're playing against a deck sight unseen, it can be a really fun challenge to just try to figure out what they even are playing and, and what you're going to name with your turn to Meddling Mage. So I, I think for me, uh, Meddling Mage is basically one of the reasons I'm excited to play Historic. And of course, it just plays to my particular predilections. I like playing decks that play creatures that play threats that also have a controlling element which is one of the reasons i'm drawn to these human decks it's one of the reasons i like these kind of esper hero style decks is that you're playing control with a proactive creature plan and i i really do think that that is actually magic as richard garfield intended to use it unironically <laughs> I, I think sure I think that Rich Iron Claw orcs that ban cards. That's that's what he had in mind. <laughs> Grizzly Bear ban a card. <laughs> I I think that you know being able to play a deck which runs spells, planeswalkers, creatures and and has all of those things be relevant and and have those, you know, cards that name other cards as a form of interaction. I just think that it it just takes the game in interesting directions. So that's what I like about it. But maybe it's just going to be fun for me and not fun for anyone else kind of a thing. Maybe you or I will do a crafting guide for Historic, but investing in four meddling mages is an excellent use of your wildcard resources for playing Historic. All right, let's quickly talk about, there's a couple of combo decks on this list. We've got Kethis Combo, we've got Underworld Breach, is there anything much to say about these? I think, I feel like basically these decks are probably tier two, maybe tier 2.5, unless I'm mistaken. And I feel like you should probably only play these if you enjoy long convoluted combos, especially Kethis combo. Do your homework before you pick up this deck. Don't just run into the ladder and expect to learn how to play it against you know your opponent. Like You're going to have to make Sparky cry a little bit 
to really get the flow of this one down. Uh, anything to add, CGB? Mostly that they're both Mox Amber combo decks is really the key piece in both of these for creating loops of mana, either using Kethis's ability or Underworld Breach to make a loop with two Mox Ambers and usually a self-mill operation like Emery or Diligent Excavator to keep the graveyard full so that you can keep doing it over and over. And I think that one of the best printings against these is Thalia. I think Thalia throws a big wrench in that Mox Amber plan, a, a, a pretty tremendous one that they can't usually overcome. So if these start to take off, then crafting some Thalias should be on your radar. There you go. Crafting guide, indeed. Also for your crafting guide, um, if you're someone who's worried about wild cards, I probably wouldn't go in on either of these decks. These decks ask a lot of mythics from you. Maybe not Underworld Breed so much. Kethis definitely asks a lot of mythics, and it's a very linear deck. You're not necessarily going to be playing Kethis in many other decks, or Mox Amber for that matter. Although, you know, Mox Amber is a good combo enabler, so that might be enough to just invest in it by itself. But another mythic card that you're going to absolutely need four of to play in these decks. So that's just something to consider. I wouldn't invest in one of these unless you really know what you like and you know what you're doing. So that's that's just kind of a rundown of what we've been seeing in the historic meta game up until now. Now, one thing that we haven't covered much and something that is, you know, it's hard to speculate on now is what the impact of Historic Anthology 3 is going to have on the historic format. And I'm also interested to see what Ikoria does to the format. But I don't know, do you want to, before we get moving here, do you want to give us some of your thoughts on what we might be looking forward to with Historic Anthology 3? Yeah, there's two things I'll be trying pretty early on. Number one, Tempered Steel. Mm. One white-white enchantment rare artifact creatures you control get plus two, plus two. That you mentioned Ornithopter. Oh, baby. Permanent gas. Just a free... 2-4 two, two, flying creature. Um, we still have Steel Overseer. We have a number of little artifact creatures that are incredibly underwhelming. But Ginger Brute is a card. All that glitters is still a card that's starting to get more respect in Standard. And Tempered Steel is a very, very good anthem if you have enough creatures to fill out the deck. I think that there's a chance that it's here and some kind of a very cheap white-based artifact aggro deck could be a historic player potentially maybe you stick some blue in there so that you can meddling mage and spell pierce and swan song after sideboard you know what i mean so that's something i have an eye on yeah that's that's definitely an exciting deck for sure and one of the fun things about these broader formats like historic is that things like an artifact deck have a lot more support Whereas in Standard, you always feel like a couple really good playables away from having a really good artifact deck. So yeah, the broader your format is, the more likely you are to have these cool cards like Steel Overseer, like some of this other stuff going on to just fill it out and kind of give you all the pieces that you need to make it good. So that's the kind of thing that's only going to get better as the format matures. Something that I'm not looking forward to, but which I think is going to be happening a lot, is people Luka-ing into Ulamog. That's just <laughs> something that you need to be ready for. Yeah, I guess you have to be ready to in exile. You, you better just have good price exile removal. God, what do we even have? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Like, Settle the Wreckage and Seal Away aren't good because you still lose 20 cards from your library, which could be a big factor. If if you're specifically in the Ozov colors, the Esper colors, the uh, the black-white exile spells are going to be good. We've got the mm-hmm. one that exiles if you control a human. Dire Tactics, yes. Oh, God, if you don't have the human, though, you have to take 10 damage. That's pretty gnarly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, wow. That, that is oh, the iron price. Oof. That's it, indeed. <laughs> How, however, any deck which is cheating Ulamog into play probably hasn't done a good job of damaging you up until that point. So. Yeah, they don't play Shatter the Sky in those Jeskai Fires Luka decks. That's right. Yep. It's fine. Yep. This is fine. You're safe. So so we're doing okay there. But um, we also have the black-white one that exiles a permanent of cost far or greater. D-Spark. 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 So D-Spark is good against Luka, good against Ulamog. So I think the Ozov colors give us some good stuff there. You know what happened to D-Spark, though? Luris happened to D-Spark. Yeah, Luris did happen to D-Spark, which is definitely going to keep that card in the sideboard. So uh, that's a thing. I'm trying to think of any other like efficient exile removal, and I'm having kind of a hard time. I mean, of course, we have stuff like Eat to Extinction, which is fairly expensive, but you'd still probably bring it in against Luca Ulamog um, because. Wait, I got it. I got it. We're overthinking this. What, what are we missing? To fairy bounce it. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. That's why my Ulamog deck is going to be going for Nissa. Like, I'm going to go for all forest mana base, but still splashing other colors because of the Triomes and playing Nyssa so that I can recast Ulamog over and over if they bounce it. Yeah, and it does lead me to the question of, is Ulamog really better than Agent of Treachery? And it's kind of bizarre that I'm even asking that question, but it's worth considering. You know what I mean? It is. Is it better to take their best thing or exile two of their things? Obviously, context is everything, but it seems like Agent of Treachery is easier in so many ways. Yeah, it's definitely like your plan B is a lot stronger with Agent of Treachery than it is with the Ulamog. But yeah, I expect to see, uh, to be honest, I expect to see a lot of Luca in Historic. Um, I expect to see a lot of Yorion in Historic. I expect to see a lot of Fires of Invention in Historic. I think that Historic is probably going to go through a phase of looking very much like Standard, simply because Ikaria with the Companions and uh, Throne of Eldraine just being a bonkers set, and uh, even War of the Spark being a bonkers set. There's just so many of the cards from the recent sets are very, very strong that I think that Historic is going to continue... To, into this new format to feel like standard plus instead of feeling like necessarily its own complete format. I could be totally wrong about that. It could be that these some of these new anthology cards are just going to spawn whole new archetypes that we weren't prepared for. But I, it's like when I go down the card list, like companions, mana generators, busted planeswalkers, these are just all things that we've gotten in abundance in the last couple of sets. And I don't think that they're going to be any less dominant in Historic than they are currently in Standard. That's my theory. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just agreed. <laughs> so anyway, yep, just get get ready for those familiar play patterns, friends. The familiar play patterns of yesteryear, the familiar play patterns of this year, they're just going to be together in one fun soup. 
So we'll be checking in on this format when it feels relevant and hopefully giving you an update after we've had a chance to do some slaying on the ladder. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this show. Thanks so much for joining us again. You can find ArenaCraft Podcast by just searching for ArenaCraft Podcast, ArenaCraftPod at gmail.com, ArenaCraft Podcast uh, on YouTube. And so please leave us a review, follow us on all the platforms. It's much appreciated. You can find Covert Go Blue by searching that phrase slash three words slash one word anywhere that you feel like searching Covert Go Blue. He is especially hot on the YouTubes. He is especially hot on the Twitch. Thanks for joining us, and we will look forward to talking with you again next week. Later. Welcome to another episode of... I forgot the name of my own podcast. All right. (laughs) The Arena Craft Podcast. (laughs) 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 (la